Larry Norman. Maybe you've heard of him. Father of Christian rock, he's known as. Years ago, he had this great song called Reader's Digest. Maybe you've heard that. And in that song, he sings, The Beatles said, all you need is love. Then they broke up. Love is something we all know we need. And it tends to be also something we all know we mess up quite a bit, isn't it? Ours is a culture that values love very much. In fact, today, it seems many seem... To, to, to see uh, love as the highest virtue, the highest aim, the meaning of the universe. And ours is also a culture that has largely written off Christianity as irrelevant, as irrational, and even hateful. But our scripture today says some tremendous and astounding things about love, things that would be well worth our consideration. For Christians, we have so much to learn from a passage like this. And if you're not a Christian, I'd invite you to practice open-mindedness and see if you don't find this compelling. 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. Turn there with me. We'll read this together and see what's there for us. 1 John chapter 4. Verses 7 through 12. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another... God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. This is God's word. It's a deeply rich passage. I'd like us to zoom in this morning on three important aspects of it. Three points. Number one, we will focus on the nature of God. Number two, the work of God. And thirdly, the call of God. So those three things today. The nature of God, the work of God, the call of God. So first, the key statement in verses 7 and 8 is found at the end of verse 8. goes like this. God is love. God is love. John Stott called this statement the most comprehensive and sublime of all biblical affirmations about God's being. We could spend our entire lives exploring the infinite riches and meaning of this little statement 
and we would barely scratch the surface. God is love. It's important to notice it does not say love is God. God is love, but love is not God. Think about that. In our culture where love is so elevated, so cherished and sought after, it's pretty evident that the running theory for many today is that love is indeed God. Love is the highest and greatest good, the meaning of all things, the greatest answer to all questions. But that's not what the Apostle John actually says here. Love is not God, but God is love. Love has its origin, its foundation, and basis, ultimately, in who God is. This is what is so astounding. Love isn't listed here merely as one of God's attributes, though it is. This is the only faith, it's the only scripture, it's the only religion that teaches this very important point. It's not listed here merely as one of God's attributes where we would say God is loving or God loves. John is saying infinitely more than that. Love is part of who God is. It's a central part of his very nature, his being. And so the only reason you and I can ever even know anything about love or know what it looks like and how it works is because it flows from its source, God. It might be helpful at this point for us to define love. What is that? What is love? Baby, don't hurt me. What is love? What is it? There are plenty of helpful definitions out there. Here's one. Love is self-giving for the good and joy of another. That's what our love is supposed to look like. And it finds its source foundation, and basis in God, self-giving for the good and joy of another. So think about that as part of who God is, not just what he does. God's very nature is to give himself, to sacrifice for others, to pursue their joy as the source of his own joy. That's what love is. And that's who God is in his loveness, if you will. All this is leading us to an inevitable point, something extraordinary, something crucial for us to explore and understand. It's the heart of the gospel. It's the heart of the universe. Are you ready for it? It goes like this. Only the triune God is love. No other God is love. No other conception of God is love. God is love, John says, and only the triune God is love. To understand God's nature and character as love, we need to understand how God relates to himself within the three persons of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And when you peer into that great mystery, what you see is love. They are reciprocating, giving themselves in communication, affirmation, exaltation, 
all for the joy and gladness of the other. John chapter 3 says, The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Jesus says in John 14, I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. They love each other. And this shows itself in how they relate to one another. And it is a relating that you can trace back into eternity past and will forever be true, this eternal, divine, Trinitarian love. Maybe you've heard the old warning, the Trinity. Try to understand it and you'll lose your mind. Try to deny it and you'll lose your soul. While the teaching is certainly cognitively challenging, Charles Spurgeon was right when he said, to believe and love the Trinity is to possess the key of theology. It's crucial for us to understand God as he's revealed himself, and he has revealed himself as triune in nature. The Trinity is something we may not ever be able to fully comprehend, but it is certainly something we can apprehend. We can understand, accept, and love our triune God. In an effort, though, to comprehend, there have been a lot of analogies offered to help explain the Trinity. I have found that many people are quite surprised when I tell them this, but so far, all of our favorite analogies of the Trinity are bad. I'm sorry to burst your bubble if you have your own favorite analogy, but please understand, I don't know what it is. Maybe it's the H2O thing. You've got a solid, a liquid, and a gas all in one element. Maybe it's something simple like you just like a good old-fashioned three-leaf clover. Whatever it is, please hear and understand this. These analogies don't work. They never go nearly far enough, and in fact... Often, our favorite illustrations actually expose a heresy that has been rejected by Orthodox Christianity throughout its history. But please don't let that bug you. Maybe you need to alter the way you talk to people about the Trinity if you usually typically go there, and that's okay, but just please understand, think clearly about this. This doesn't need to bother you, though. This doesn't need to bug you or get you all upset. The reason that the Trinity cannot be adequately explained by your favorite analogy is because we have an analogical problem. We do not have a logical problem but an analogical problem, meaning simply that there is no good analogy for the Trinity. Why? Because analogies require comparison to something familiar when trying to make sense of something mysterious. Do you understand that? And we're not talking about just something mysterious. We're talking about the infinite creator of the universe. Did you know that God is big? The modern approach to understanding God goes a little something like this. Sure, I could believe in God, but only if he held to my own ideas and values. And so we tend to shrink our view of God down to our personal ways of thinking, which are very specific 
very individual, and therefore very narrow. The God most people want, even in their claims of tolerance and open-mindedness, turns out to be pretty narrow-minded indeed. He's simply a projection of themselves. It's been said that in the beginning, God made man in his own image. And man has been trying to return the favor ever since. Theologian Fred Sanders says it like this, The kind of God we want to worship is the kind who is pretty much exactly like us. The kind of God who shares our thinking, preferences, and tastes. But when we encounter the real God from the words in the Bible and the Christian teaching that comes from it, our mind is expanded, and we must either find new reasons to reject him, or we must surrender our objections altogether. And when we encounter the real God revealed in Scripture, we encounter the Trinity. The Trinity is perhaps one of the most neglected or ignored doctrines in the church today, what is the Trinity? If, if you need to do some further exploring or, or education, self-education to get caught up uh, and get up to speed on the doctrine of the Trinity, uh, there are a number of helpful resources I would point you to. One is James White's book, The Forgotten Trinity, and he offers a concise definition of this doctrine. What is the Trinity? White says, Within the one being that is God, there exists eternally three co-equal and co-eternal persons, namely the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The doctrine of the Trinity is that God is one God, eternally existent in three persons. That's not tritheism, where you have three separate gods who kind of work together in harmony, that's basically the Mormon view, more or less. It's not unipersonalism either. The notion that sometimes God takes one form and sometimes he takes another form, but these different forms are simply different manifestations of one person. That's not what's going on here. Instead, Trinitarianism holds that there is one God in three persons who know and love one another. The key to understanding all this is the difference between essence and persons. God is one in essence or in nature or being. But he's three in person. Pay attention. God is one what? Essence. And he is three whose? persons. We dare not mix up the what's and the who's with the Trinity. The way in which God is one is different from the way in which he is three. As Sanders puts it, God, God is not one something and also somehow three of the same somethings. In other words, if, if we were to say God is one person and God is three persons, that's a logical problem. That's a contradiction. But the way in which God is one 
is not the same as the way in which he is three. He is one in essence or one in name. Great Commission, baptize them in the name, singular, of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He is one in essence and three in person. Is your head spinning yet? Are you with me? This is why it's important to to unpack all of this. God is love. This is why the Trinity is so important. Only the triune God is love. But because the Trinity is difficult to comprehend, many people have a hard time rejecting it. Or many people have a hard time accepting it and therefore reject it. But I'd like us to think about some alternatives. Think about this alternative, no God at all. You could become an atheist if you want to go that route. But if there's no God at all, that means that love is literally an illusion. Any consistent atheist will affirm that. As important as you think love is, and I know you think it's important, it's really inconsequential and meaningless, ultimately. Chemical processes in the brain, and then you die. And with great respect to my atheist friends, I would ask, do you really believe that? Is that really satisfying to you? Well, what about a different conception of God? What about a unipersonal God? Like the God of Islam or Jehovah's Witnesses, for example. The problem with that is until such a God would create other beings to love, there was no love. This means that a unipersonal God was power from all eternity, but it couldn't be said that he was love in his essence, the way John says it. In our passage, love then is not the essence of God, nor is it at the heart of the universe. Power is primary. Love comes along later. It's not as fundamental as power. It's not as important. And with great respect to my Muslim and Jehovah's Witness friends, I would ask, do you really believe that? Is that really satisfying to you deep down? But with our triune God revealed in Scripture, love comes first. It's out of his love that he created a race of beings to share that love with. Ultimate reality is our triune God. Ultimate reality is a community of persons who know and love one another. So it can truly be said love really is as important as we think it is. C.S. Lewis puts it like this in Mere Christianity. The words, God is love, have no real meaning unless God contains at least two persons. Love is something one person has for another person. If God was a single person, then before the world was made, he was not love. And long before Lewis St. Augustine said it like this, Love exists only where there is one who is loved, one who loves, and the love itself. So if you really think that love is the greatest value, like so many in our culture, if you really think that love is the meaning of the universe, then you have to believe in a triune God. If you think that love is truly important, this is the kind of God that gives you a basis for believing that 
in a meaningful way. Nothing else can adequately account for these intuitions that we have. The universe is really about love. God is really all about love. History and life, all of it really is all about love, as we may hope or feel, but only one worldview can account for that. Love is from God, John says. God is love. And how do we know that? How can we really know that God loves us? And the answer is found in the following verses and in our next point. The work of God. Everybody say, propitiation. Very nice. It's one of those five-syllable theological words that tend to break up polite parties. We don't often use it. I bet for those of you who came into church late this morning, I bet you probably didn't say to yourself, oh man, Pastor Bennett is going to be so mad. We had better find some way to make propitiation. It's just not how we talk, is it? And yet, propitiation is well worth thinking about and understanding. Here at Sheboygan E. Free, we care a lot about your theological training. We want you to know the meaning of words like propitiation. I would like to be able to call you at your home at three in the morning, wake you out of a deep sleep and say, define propitiation and have you just do it and then go back to bed. I'm probably not actually going to do that to any of you, but just in case I do, make sure you know what propitiation means. Simply put, propitiation means to appease someone's wrath. It's a wrath-removing sacrifice. God is angry at our sin, your sin and mine. We who are guilty of sinning need God's wrath against our sin to be removed and his justice to be satisfied. Jesus Christ, God the Son, second person in the triune God, in giving his life as a perfect sacrifice, satisfied the righteous and just wrath of God the Father against our sin and thus provided for us reconciliation and peace with God. This is exactly the way God's love was made manifest among us, according to the text. Propitiation refers to a sacrifice that bears God's wrath to the end. In other words, satisfies it. And in so doing, it changes God's wrath toward us into favor. As John Stott summarizes, in biblical propitiation, God himself gave himself to save us from himself. Please understand, this is not just some old, dusty, theological concept that doesn't matter anymore. Every day, you and I face a, tent, a, t- a constant temptation to ignore Christ as our God-given propitiation, and we face a temptation to seek other ways of cutting little deals with God in order to gain his favor and appease his wrath. We try to find something he'll like, so at least he'll at least refrain from 
smiting us, and we begin to think very quickly that we by ourselves can somehow prove to God that he should be happy with us. We put, we put way too much onto our own shoulders. We're not big enough or good enough to ever truly propitiate God. Our sin isn't small enough to just be set aside by the little offerings we come up with, whatever they are. Every one of us needs a plan for getting on the right side of God. But if the true God is, is, is tr- truly how he's made himself known in the Bible, then there's only one way of propitiation, the one that God himself put forth in the blood of Jesus. John Piper summarizes, it was God's love that sent his son to bear God's just penalty and to take away God's wrath. The greatest manifestation of the love of God is God's unilateral action to satisfy his own wrath. This theology of the atonement, specifically the substitutionary death of Christ to provide propitiation, this has been controversial for a long time. And it will be controversial for a long time. It's not going to go away because you say, well, why can't we just concentrate on teaching about how God is a God of love? I don't like wrath. Why can't we just say God, is, God loves everybody and let that be enough? The short answer is that if you take away the cross, you don't have a God of love. That's why John can put the love of God and the wrath of God in propitiation right alongside each other in the same verse, in the same thought. Don't pit the two against each other. They go hand in hand. One cannot be rightly understood and appreciated without the other. Moments ago, we sang together one of my favorite modern hymns, In Christ Alone. And a lot of people like that song. A few years back, in fact, a committee in the PCUSA, which is the more theologically liberal branch of Presbyterianism, wanted to add in Christ alone to their new hymnal. But as much as they loved that song, there was just one small line that they didn't like. And we sang it just a bit ago. It went like this. Till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. That's propitiation. But some don't like that idea very much. Some think that talking about this satisfied wrath of God somehow diminishes his love. And so the PCUSA hymnal committee asked permission to actually change that line in the song. And they wanted to change that one little line to say, Till on that cross, as Jesus died, the love of God was magnified. That would make them feel better. That would make them feel better about having it in their hymnal and sung in their denomination. But get this, songwriters Keith Getty and Stuart Townend rejected the proposal, thinking that, It was too important. Propitiation is too important to just shove aside. And so the committee ended up voting six to nine to ditch the song. Getty was asked about all this after the fact. Why wouldn't he allow the subtle change in lyrics? There's nothing 
too theologically alarming about it. On the cross as Jesus died, the love of God was magnified. It seems true enough. Why wouldn't he just allow them to do that? Well, he answered, and Getty said, We believe altering the lyrics here would remove an essential part of the gospel story as explained throughout Scripture. The main thread of what we see revealed throughout the Old and New Testament is the need for man to be made right with God. The provided path toward reconciliation came through Christ's predetermined and perfect sacrifice on the cross, satisfying God's wrath once and for all. The hymnal committee wanted to change the lyrics to focus on how Christ's death on the cross magnifies God's love for the world. And indeed, Getty says, God's love was magnified on Calvary's hill. But the way this occurred was through Christ doing for us what we could not do for ourselves, shedding his own perfect blood to atone for our sins. Getty understands, despite some popular opinion, that there is no contradiction between God's wrath and God's love. How can God love us and be angry with us at the same time? That's what so many have trouble understanding. It doesn't seem possible that God could be loving and wrathful at the same time. They contradict each other. It's got to be one or the other. But why? Why is that so puzzling for us? Do you have kids? Do you love them? Are you ever angry with them? If you're a good parent, and indeed God is a good father, you're only ever angry with your child because you love them. It's never in spite of your love. It's never a competition of the love you have that has to be set aside for a bit because now you've got to exercise wrath. That's not how it works. And moreover, our culture not only has a strong sense of the importance of love, as we've discussed, we also have a very strong sense of the importance of justice. In our everyday lives, where the rubber meets the road, none of us seem to struggle very much with holding both these virtues closely together. Why is it necessary that there be a propitiation for our sins? Why doesn't God just wave his magic wand? He's God after all. Why doesn't he just wave his magic wand and forgive everyone's sin? We can answer that question by asking a different question, a similar question, a question something like, why doesn't the state of, care of South Carolina just wave its magic wand and forgive Dylan Roof for murdering nine African Americans during an evening prayer service at a church in Charleston in June 2015? They're the state of South Carolina, after all. Why can't they just wave that magic wand and say it's all good? To even ask such a question is to answer it. We don't even have to think very carefully about that. To do so would be an egregious violation of justice. Think about it. If God were to do the same for our sins, it would be a denial of the seriousness of sin, and it would be a gross violation of his justice. Love and justice must not 
be pitted against each other. They go hand in hand. One more thing should be said here. Verse 10 starts out, In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. God's love doesn't start with us. It never did. It starts with God. Friends, please understand that you cannot sin yourself beyond the love of God. Sometimes you feel like you can, but you cannot. Please understand that there's nothing you can do to make God love you any more than he loves you right now. You can't go home today and be a good little girl or boy and prove to God that that he should love you even more than he does. That's not how this works. And please understand, there's nothing you can do to make God love you any less than he loves you right now. God's love could not be based on our lovability because God loved us before we existed. Ephesians 1 tells us that. John says later in chapter 4, we'll hear in a, a few weeks, we love because he first loved us. Our love is a responding love. God's love is an uninfluenced, initiating love. And it is the initiating love of God that causes us to love him and others. Which leads us into our final point this morning, the call of God. The call of God is that we love because we've been loved. This is logical. If I say, I believe this, God loves me, then I must live like that. I love others. God loved us with initiating, costly, sacrificing love. We are to love in the same way. Since God himself is love, and we have fellowship and communion with him, love is the litmus test for our discipleship. If we love others, we belong to Jesus. If we don't, we're not his at all. The apostle says, but beloved, let us love one another. That's an obligation, but it's more than that. It's an opportunity to experience the wonder of God, of who he is in our lives. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And when John writes that, what does he mean by ought? That we ought to love one another. Well, if we keep in mind the the context and we look back at verses 7 and 8, we know that John isn't just saying we should imitate God. That's not just what he's saying. That we should say, well, God loved us, so we should look at how he did that and try to imitate it, try to do it ourselves. God is calling us to love based on what was written already before this call. John Piper helps us understand this. He says, we ought to love each other the same way fish ought to swim in water and birds ought to fly in the air and living creatures ought to breathe and peaches ought to be sweet and lemons ought to be sour and hyenas ought to laugh and born-again people ought 
to love. It's who we are, Piper says. This is not mere imitation. For the children of God, imitation becomes realization. We are realizing who we are when we love. God's nature is in us. God's love is being perfected in us. We must love one another. And we know it's true. And we also know that we typically mess this up. There are so many commands in Scripture to love one another. Why? Why all the commands to love? Why so much emphasis on it? So much repetition, especially in 1 John. You want to know why? Because it's hard. It was hard for John's original readers, and it's hard for you and me. He knew that probably from existence or from experience, and he therefore hits it again and again and again. He really wants us to understand what love really is, where it really comes from, how it really works. The love of God propelling us, pushing us out to love others. God's love being perfected in us. And this is hard work. Some Christians can be difficult to love. Did you know that? So we sing to ourselves, To dwell above with saints I love, that will be glory. But to dwell below with saints I know, now that's a different story. How do we do this? How can we? Well, we start by remembering what John has been teaching us in this letter. We remind ourselves of the words in verse 11. If God so loved us. Those words are a game changer. They keep me from thinking or feeling that I'm the one being wronged, that I'm the one being shortchanged. Not so fast, says the gospel. Remember who you were. Remember who you are. Remember who you were before you came to Christ. It used to be all about me. I was the most important person in the universe. Self on the throne. Self-centeredness. Self-assertion. Self-conceit. Self-indulgence. Self-defensiveness. Self-sufficiency. All of that changed when you came to Christ. It's not about you anymore. I was a wretch. I was an enemy of God. A child of wrath. And he loved me. He's forgiven me. He's forgiven me. He has set me free to not care so much about my own agenda. It doesn't matter. It's all about him now, and it's all about others now. When I see myself as I, realize, as, as I really am, when I've died to self, it's impossible for someone to insult me or offend me. Martin Lloyd-Jones has said, Whatever the world may say about me, the truth is probably worse. C.S. Lewis has said, There is something in each of us that cannot be naturally loved. He said, you might as well ask people to like the taste of rotten bread. 
when you know who you are in Christ and when you know where you came from, you know that you've had nothing to offer him. Nothing. And he takes you in. No matter what others may do or say to you, you can love. How do we do this? Well, we don't do it, not on our own anyway. God does it in us and through us, his love being perfected in us. This is so important. Francis Schaeffer called this love, this active and observable love between Christians. He said it was the final apologetic. And what he meant is that the love shown between Christians and others is the best way for the world to recognize the reality of Christianity. As Christians love each other, the world sees the love of God because that's what's in us, being perfected in us. If we ignore each other, if we shun or are unkind to a fellow gospel believer, we damage the message of the gospel. We cripple our ability to display the power of the gospel. We obscure the love of God, which was manifested at the cross and completed in our fellowship with one another. The absence of love in the church undermines the credibility of our gospel. Swallow your pride and apologize when you need to. Forgive others quickly, freely, and generously. You have been so forgiven. You are loved by our triune creator God. You are his child forever because of the propitiation that Christ accomplished for you at Calvary. Allow that earth-shattering love, that eternal love manifested at the cross, allow that love that God has for you to shine through you toward others. That is precisely how the Lord Jesus told us our witness of him would shine through to the world around us. Can we do this together? Would you stand and we'll close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for who you are and for what you've done for us. We know, each and every one of us, that we've been alienated from you by our own choosing. We know we've rebelled against you and we know we are unworthy and therefore we know, each and every one of us, we have this sense that we need to try to somehow make things right. Help us to see today that we don't need to try to make things right anymore, that they've been made right wherever we are. However our week has gone, however our lives are going, propitiation has been accomplished. Salvation has been achieved, and it's a gift. We pray by your Spirit waking us up and seeing the reality of our risen Savior, who he is and what he's done for us that we would receive this gift and that this gift of salvation and of divine love 
would begin and continue to change us, chip away at the hardness of heart remaining, chip away at the remaining unbelief we carry, and Father, that it would push us out into the world and push us in into each other in this fellowship to love sacrificially. So help us do this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.